The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 327 premium for Thursday, April 28th, 2011. Good evening, folks, and welcome to this uh, thunderstorm afternoon version of the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. Welcome, all premium subscribers, and thank you for subscribing. Uh, as you well know, here from Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How you doing today, John? Great. Like you, uh, yeah, the, the, the weather, uh, the, there's a bit of turmoil out there. It's frightful. Especially, uh, yeah. especially uh, farther down south. I was just going to so say. Hope everybody's okay. Yeah, what we, what we have is nothing compared to, uh, to what was going on down there. That's for sure. Uh, enough about the weather. Enough about the weather. We can talk about the weather. It's scary. It is. Um, yeah, so we have we have quite a bit of stuff. In fact, we have two uh, follow-up tips from uh, show 324. And then actually toward the end, we have a follow-up tip from show 316, which is worth going back in time for because it's awesome. But we will save that uh, for the end. Uh, but from show 324, we have a little note from Connor. And Connor writes... Uh, if I understand Scott's question correctly, Scott, of course, wrote in about uh, exporting uh, podcasts from iTunes and then uh, trying to you know, pull those into a new version or a different installation of iTunes. And Connor writes in iTunes, if you right click on the podcast tab in the sidebar, you can select export and then you can save it out as an OPML file. Then on the new computer, go to file in the file menu, add to library, and then select that OPML file. This will import all of the podcasts to which you're subscribed. It won't pull the data with it. But of course, with podcasts, uh, for the most part, you can just re-download uh, from there. And then you're you're good to go. And you didn't have to manually uh, move your subscriptions back and forth. So that, that's pretty cool. OPML, John, what, uh, what, what does that stand for? If I had to take a guess, I'd say it stands for Outline Processor Markup Language. Works for me. Which, um, and actually, if you look, so I, I think I see what they're doing, Dave, because I, I poked around and looked at this, and, and I think our recommendation was all-encompassing, but, but as far as I can tell, this data, so, so inside, if you go in your music folder, and then your iTunes folder, there's this kind of big whomping file in there, which I'm sure this is where it gets it from, called okay. iTunesMusicLibrary.xml. And I, I think I looked in there and I, I poked around a bit. And you can open that with a number of different programs. Sure. And XML is, is for the most part, uh, and I think when I looked in there, it's just text info. But it's buried in there somewhere. But I'm looking at mine, for example, on, on my one machine here, it's seven and a half megabytes, which That's pretty so you big. don't want to go. So I'm sure you could you know, fiddle with this file and pull that data out of there. This is obviously a better way to do it. Right. So. And it may not be stored in that same OPML format in that XML file. I mean, it probably is, but you know, this, this ensures that you get it out in a, in a nice clean little box. Yeah. So, so I did not know that. I know, you know I it's, do. And it, you do. It's and a beautiful everyone thing. Does. Yep. You, you know, speaking of other things, uh, I didn't know, and, and I'm totally jumping off the reservation here. Uh, we have a new writer that started with us at TMO uh, recently named Melissa Holt, and she published an article last night about changing how Apple Mail copies email addresses. And if you've ever gone up in a mail message and right clicked on or even clicked on the little drop down that's next to, say, the from address from an email, you can see that there's a little copy um, uh, option there, copy address. And it will copy the address to the clipboard, but it doesn't just copy the address. It copies the person's full name and then the address inside brackets. If you wanted to paste that into another mail message, it's freaking perfect. However, if you want to do just about anything else with it, it's not so good. And you, I, I don't know about you, John, but I've countless times wound up, you know, trimming the, the, the brackets off the ends and, and of course, deleting the, uh, the person's name. So... You can change mail's behavior with this. And Melissa pointed out how it's a defaults command at the terminal. It's, it's one line. And the, the thing that you said is addresses include name on pasteboard. And you set that to no. And then it works fine. So awesome stuff. So, so this will change because so for when I see Dave, I'm in mail right now. And normally yeah. there's a data detector that I think 
we'll we'll say copy. So this changes the behavior of the copy address. Yep. yep. Item instead of right instead of copying it with with the full name and the formatting, it just pulls the email address portion, the user at well, host name dot. Yeah. Hey, yeah, that's handy. It now, can I don't be. recall, uh, Dave. I don't think she's uh, she's been through the initiation. Uh, well, we, we probably got to be careful of that in the workplace, right? <laughs> right. I, I don't remember the uh, the hazing uh, ritual for. No, that's uh, for right. She's out in the, she's out in Colorado, I believe. So. Oh, yep. oh, I, I think that's uh, I think her own uh, Jeff is out there. Too, Jeff, right? That's and uh, yeah, she was a friend of Jeff Gamets or, or acquaintance of Jeff Gamets. I think she's oh, a wonderful. Mac, Mac okay, well, maybe. maybe oh, okay. Maybe the next Mac World will have a yeah. Yeah. Uh, a, a welcoming ceremony. Let's call it that. There you go. <laughs> cool. All right. So back on our uh, our podcast agenda, I, I meant to put that on the agenda and I'm glad uh, glad it popped to mind. Daniel wrote also about show 324 uh, and starting up from a wireless keyboard, which was uh, something we discussed. He says, I recently had the need the need to use this function a lot. The key is to wait for the green light and the top corner of the Bluetooth keyboard to illuminate, then press your key selection and it works just fine. So thanks for clarifying that, Daniel. I think we had we had speculated to that, but uh, but I very much appreciate the uh, the clarification. That's awesome. OK, well, Apple's Apple's article was not entirely clear, but I think this means that when that light is on, that it's because uh, I believe they're all Bluetooth. So I think that means it's paired and ready to go. So, right. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I would, I'll buy that. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Good tip. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm I still think a so. wire type of guy. I don't know about you. Uh, yeah, no, my keyboard is not wired. Um, but, but it's a pain in the neck because it's a Logitech keyboard that came as part of a set. And I really like the keyboard, mm. But a wireless keyboard for me is, I mean, it's nice to not have to worry about stringing cables, but uh, I have the cables to string, so I don't mind doing it. But um, it just means that, you know, surprise every whatever month and a half, I, um, I have to change the batteries and that's a pain in the neck. Can I, can, I'm going to have to jump off the, uh, the map again here, John, because I, um, I just thought of something else. You know, I've been using my, my <laughs> magic mouse. Right. Yes. I have the Apple yeah, I, have, I have one of those. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. this, I have the same problem with that because it's wireless, right? The batteries, you know, all of a sudden it's like, hey, your mouse is gonna, you know, die soon. You're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then right in the middle of doing something, of course, that's it. It's gone. Uh, so, and it's a pain because you know you got to take these out, and if you got rechargeable batteries, you got to get them out of the thing, and you got to do the what, and you know maybe I got to go back to the house to get more batteries, and it's just a big production. And so for half the day, I wind up using the trackpad that's on my laptop. Mobi, M-O-B-E-E, has introduced something called the Magic Charger. And uh, and I've been playing this, playing with this, not playing it because it's not really an instrument. Uh, but I've been playing with this for about the last month and it totally works. In fact, I've been through a charge cycle with it. So the idea is it's an induction charger, a wireless charger for the Magic Mouse. And what that means is you put your magic mouse on just on top of this thing. It's, it's sort of a cradle, but you know, you just sort of rest it on top of it and it charges. And the way it does it is you take off the uh, battery door on the bottom of the thing and you take the batteries out and then it comes with this battery pack that has its own door built into it. And of course the door is now the induction charger. So you pop this battery pack in, it doesn't add any weight or change anything about it other than putting the Moby logo on the bottom and can't blame them for that. And, uh, and then it just works. That's it. It's, it's awesome. And their batteries, you know, the batteries that I got from them, which is the the pack that comes with it. Uh, once fully charged, I think they lasted me about, I don't know, three or four weeks, which is about normal for me. I use my mouse all day long and, uh, and then, you know, when I had to charge it, I just, boom, I put it on the thing. The next morning I come in, good to go. Everybody's happy. So uh, it is, of course, I didn't prep to do this. So it's Moby Technology, M-O-B-E-E technology.com. And the Magic Charger, I think it's 50 bucks, 49, yeah, 49.90 from, uh, from Moby. And that includes one pack and then the charging station, the, you know, the little base station thing. So. Okay, interesting. Yep. I've seen something similar, and then we'll move on. But but I have seen it some of the the, the shows that I go to in uh, in New York City, Energizer. 
uh, oh, is the most yeah. notable that I remember. Energizer makes something called, not surprisingly, the Energizer Inductive Charging Pad, which hey, does. That's a, that's a really uh, catchy name. But it, it describes exactly. It so without yeah. without going into, a, you know, without giving an electrical engineering lesson, it's a, it's a metal coil and, you know, you can transfer energy using that. So, so the only thing, as you pointed out, is you need a receiver. It, it can't just push the energy into the device without having the, the receiving coil. Right. So, um, but no, I wonder if that's going to be the, I mean, it seems like a nicer way of doing things rather than, yeah, having the device fail on you. So, <laughs> well, and just having to keep batteries around and managing that, it just, it's an all in one sort of thing. It works really well for me. It's, um, it's been great. It's been great. So, I wanted to make sure I mentioned it uh, because hopefully somebody out there will want it. You know, I guess that really falls into that cool stuff found category, but you know, jumped up off the track. So Gary help <laughs> Gary writes, I'm currently using Microsoft office 2011 business edition, which comes with outlook. I have both, both my personal Gmail account and my school account, which are both IMAP accounts configured to work in outlook. Everything works okay when I send and receive mail. The only problem I'm having seems to be when I get an email address either on a website, in an email, or otherwise is clickable, for example. When I click on it, mail.app, comes, which comes with Snow Leopard, uh, will launch. And since I haven't configured any email accounts with it, it will ask me to do the account setup process. I have no intentions of using mail app. So how can I make it so that when I click on an email address that it will launch Outlook and not mail.app? John, do you know? I know of two solutions. Now, one of them is going to have you shaking your fist, Dave. Okay. Yeah, shaking. Go well, on. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the. I'll get the my pre-shake on then. How's without <laughs> without adding anything to your system, here's the way you go about this, Dave. Is you start Mail App. But I don't want to. Gary doesn't want to start Mail App. He wants to start. I Outlook. know he doesn't. But I'm going to tell you the uh, option number one. Okay? okay. Let me finish. Door number no. one. Uh, door number one is you start mail yeah. and then you go to the preferences, right? General. And there's going to be a choice default email reader. <laughs> Beautiful. You change that. Now, of course, why, why and I, Outlook I, I, will I, show up in that list. That's absolutely. And, and actually here are the three things that I see in mind, Dave. So I see not only mail yeah. 4.5 and Microsoft outlook 14.1.0, which I guess is the latest, but also crossover appears. <laughs> Oh, it's smart. No, that's because those crossover dudes are smart and they know you might be running a Windows mail client. So they have crossover register as a mail helper. And if you Mm -hmm, want to choose mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. it'll it'll pass that through to Windows. Oh, that's so brilliant. So that's what one does. But but it's kind of counterintuitive. And then you quit mail and away it goes. Right. And then, then yeah, and I, I think what happens is that so, yeah, normally when you start mail, if you've never started it before, it'll start going through. And I, I didn't want to wipe out my mail installation, but I assume no, but you can get to the preferences from there. I've, I've done. Right. That. Yeah. OK. So so even though you get a dialogue that starts leading you through the path of setting up your email accounts. Yeah. You, you should be able to go to the preferences and set this. But say you and, don't want to do that. Actually, I'll, I'll inter- interject here that mail Please. is is not the only program that you use to make it not the default helper for something. Uh, just as you can change the default uh, mail client with mail, you can change the default web browser with Safari and the default calendar with iCal. So it, it's it's sort of funny. If you don't want to use those programs, you have to launch them once to tell your system you don't want to use them as the defaults anymore. And some nice. stuff, I think Firefox will offer to convert to be your default browser. I mean, there's other things that will do oh, it. Oh, yes. Well, yeah. But you haven't yet a third way. I have what I think is a better way. So okay. you, you could imagine that buried deep within the bowels of OS X, there is a setting for this. Well, wouldn't it be great if there was a program that let you get at all these settings? And the good news is that there is, Dave, and we've mentioned it before, but I'm going to mention it again. And it's something called default apps or RC default apps. Yep. And That's one of your favorite pain. things. Well, because it lets you get at all of the, the, the nastiness, uh, mm-hmm. but it presents it in a nice way. And one of the first things, so once you install this prep pane yep. and you click on it, default apps, uh, I thought I heard some thunder. Okay, let's hope we don't get knocked out here because we have a severe thunderstorm warning that was supposed to end two minutes ago. Well, you, you and um, me both, John, though we are several hundred miles apart, I just looked out the window and the rain is pouring down like buckets. Oh, and there's lightning. So 
we'll see. All right. We'll, we'll let you know if we have to cut this off, but you'll hear it in full anyway whenever, whenever we finish. <laughs> so what you do is you start RC default app or default apps, and the first tab, the, the, and you click on the prep pane, and then the leftmost tab is called Internet, and it has a number of categories. And two of them that we just mentioned, though it's unusual because one you mentioned is not there, but Dave, it shows web, and it says, what would you like your default application to be? And for example, here it shows Safari as the default, but it also shows Firefox, Internet Explorer, because I still have that installed, um, Opera, and wh whatever else you have that's registered as a web browser. Likewise, under email, at least on my mini here, right. well, actually on my mini, I only have mail installed because I really don't run email on the mini. God. So uh, it also has news, FTP, and RSS. Oddly enough, it does not have an entry for a calendar application. So that, I guess, you, you, know, actually, you have I, to run iCal. I lied. Uh, you cannot set that in iCal. No, you lied. All I right. did. I did, it, which is odd to me. I thought I thought you could, but you can't. Um, when I run BusyCal, it offers to change it for me. And then once I've changed it and I launch iCal, iCal asks, do you want uh, me to be the default app? So uh, I don't, that's kind of a weird one. I don't know the magic answer there. Okay. Uh, BusyCal will let you change it though. And there are advanced preferences. Right. You can change it there. So, huh. Okay. Yeah. Well, it may be in one of these other panes, but, but anyways, great program for learning how the OS decides or changing how the OS decides what app to launch when you click on, on something. Yeah. So, and he wrote back and said, yep, that did it. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, all right. Will has a, another interesting question. We love the interesting ones. And Will even says, I have an interesting problem I thought you might like to answer. I have a set of videos in AVI format that I would like to play by default with the app VLC. I do not, however, want to change the default behavior of all AVI files to play with VLC, only those in specific folders. Do you know of a way to do this? Uh, so... It's interesting, but these two questions are actually related, or at least in the way that I'm going to think about them. Uh, when you double click on a file, Mac OS X looks at its um, it, its three digit extension. Typically, the the the, la the last the last three digits, or sometimes four digits, uh, at the end of the file to determine what app it going it's going to to use to open this, and you can see this. Uh, if you do a get info on a file, say a movie file, and you go down to the uh, open with section, you'll see that it's set to something. Now, you can set individual files to be different or you can change it and then click the change all button in the get info box to change everything. But he doesn't want to change his dot AVI files to all open with VLC, only some of them. Now, I looked into seeing if there was a way to change it for a given folder, and I couldn't figure that out. I don't know if that's possible. If it is, uh, and somebody knows, please do let us know. But my thought is, if it is a finite number of movie files, or or at least uh, a, a not rapidly growing number of movie files, my solution would be change the extension. So I, I had a file that I called movie.avi, and then I changed it to movie.custom. And it when and you do this in that same get info box. Um and it uh it it'll it'll ask you, are you sure you want to change the extension from AVI to custom? And I said yes. And then uh on the open with menu, now I want to tell it to anything that ends in dot custom, I want to open with VLC. So the way I had to do that was uh, VLC, of course, doesn't register itself as a helper for the, the app type or the file type of dot custom. So you have to go through the process of in the open with menu, you choose other and which will probably be your only option. Uh, if you've created a custom file type, then you go to your applications folder and you have to change the little drop down there from only showing you recommended apps to showing you all applications. And then once you're there, you can choose VLC. Thankfully, VLC, VLC is smart enough to not trust the file type. And it looks at the file uh, to decide whether or not it can play it. So dot custom, you know, doesn't bother VLC. It doesn't say, oh, hey, I don't know what a dot custom file is. It's smart enough to look at the actual data and figure it out. And that worked for me. So a little convoluted, but it will uh, it will get you there. So that's uh, 
That's where I got that. That's where I went with that. But John, you might, your, 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 your little handy helper application might also help us there, right? Absolutely. So this is the other way to do it is, so you certainly pointed out the, the approved way right. of associating a file extension, which actually, as far as I know, Dave, is one, but not the only way that the OS can determine what program to run, though I think it's one of the first. I, I think there's some other ways, but default apps, in addition to the internet category we talked about before that, that has the defaults for major uh, email and web, there's also an extensions category. And what is in this? It's all the three-letter, uh, and I think you said digits, but, but let, no, we'll say characters. Characters, sorry about that. It's yeah, okay. Because, yeah. yeah the, um, so what will happen if, if you click on extension in default apps, you will see a list of all the extensions. Actually, I'm looking right now, and AVI is listed, and the default application is, not surprisingly, uh, QuickTime Player. But it also shows, at least on my machine here, MPlayer, which I don't know where I got that, uh, Perian, uh, Open and QuickTime Player, and VLC. Yeah. So now it's funny because actually on my other machine show, so I see both an entry for AVI, small A, small V, small I. Yeah. But actually when I looked on my MacBook, I also had an entry for capital A, capital V, capital I, and it was huh. mapped to the same application. Okay. Okay. So, um, so that's certainly another one, but I, I, I agree with you. Actually, I did something quickly, which I think is not the right way to do it, is I think I very quickly tried to solve this by taking a movie file and adding a two at the end of it, and I don't think that's sufficient. I think it has to be... Uh, it cannot include... It, it was smart enough to say, oh, you're just adding a two to the extension. Well, that you're, you're not really serious about right. changing this. So, uh, yeah, I'm with you. So, so create a custom extension and map it, and I, and I think that's the way to go about it. Or use... Because as far as I can see in here, uh, default apps will let you create, if it's not already in your list, uh, a new extension, three letter or, or more. Actually, it doesn't have to be three characters. It could, it could right. be more. Yeah, custom worked fine. Yeah, it was happy to take the, uh, you know, the six characters there. So Nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on to Tim. Tim says, asks, would you have any suggestions on how to share an iPad within a family? We have bought one and are saving for another, but in the meantime, we would like to all use the same one. Should we set up a family account on iTunes and purchase apps that way? Is there an account switcher app that would allow us to transfer apps to our own accounts? Do we just bite the bullet and purchase apps twice? I'm sure your listeners have run into this as well. Any help, any help would be appreciated. So uh, there's a couple things to think about when you're sharing an iPad, and we've talked about them sort of disparately um, across several episodes, but to talk about it all at once here, uh, for your apps, buy them all under one account. But if you've bought them under multiple accounts, the iPad, like any other iOS device, can su simultaneously support apps from multiple iTunes uh, accounts. It, it's no problem at all. It, it works just fine. It's happy to do it. So uh, so you're totally fine to you know re-download stuff to the iPad from multiple accounts. And you just got to go through the process that we talked about in the last show of changing um, you know, changing your account in the app store app, but, uh, but it's fairly simple and you just go down to the bottom of the categories list, I think, or the featured list. I think it's at the bottom of both of those we figured out. So, uh, no, you should not need to purchase apps twice. That that's not necessary at all. Uh, another thing, another problem you might run into is with email. If you've got four people that want to check their email there, well, the mail app is not built to be shared. Uh, but we have talked about an app called Mailboxes for the iPad uh, that's built for multiple people to have access to their individual Gmail accounts on the iPad. And uh, and it can password protect them and it works. It actually works really, really well. So um, so that that that's certainly a, a good, helpful option. Lastly, web browsing. Same thing. Uh, you know, Safari has its own settings. There, there are multiple other web browsers out there. Atomic is an interesting one that allows some some real personality and, and privacy configuration. You can have it wipe its settings out anytime you quit. You can, you know, uh, more easily clear the, the history or control how that goes. So uh, so that that's that's the other piece of that that I would uh, that I would do. Unfortunately, you know, data and all that stuff from like games and high scores and app data is limited to there is no multi-account support for that there but that mm -hmm. it is what it is so so that's 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 what i would do any you, you you're now an ios device 
using person. Of course, you don't. Well, I, ha- I have them, been for a while. I know with, with the iPod Touch and now with the iPhone, and mm-hmm. and yeah, I have nothing to add to this because I'm the only user. Right. 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 I, I don't share with anybody else in the household because there's there is no one else That's in the right. household. <laughs> it's, now that you've gotten rid of that mouse, right? I did, and you know, you said no. You you were wrong. It, it was a single mouse. Uh huh. No, whatever has, I did, nobody has mouse, John. Oh no, I did. <laughs> well, he he may have had friends, but they they all left. I, okay. I was able to um to secure entrance. the premises. That's well, yeah, that was that, yeah. I told you. Yeah, it uh. One of them, uh, I take it as a compliment, actually. I think I was cooking something, cooking a nice meal. And uh, yeah, saw a mouse scurrying about. So uh, I, I take it as a compliment that I make a, right. a you know, a meal that, that Fit, appeals to, to not only humans, but uh, that's right. it's, it's, <laughs> it, it's extended beyond just uh, humans. That's beautiful. <laughs> of course, what am I seeing now? Now it looks like it's ant season. Yay. Oh, boy. All right. So we're going to go down a little bit of a rat hole here and. And really, it's actually up the rat hole. See how I'm tying it to up the mouse hole, whatever. I don't know. We're going to talk about the menu bar. We've got a couple of questions about the Ooh. menu bar. Yeah, all right. Uh, all right. So the first one that we will do, I think it makes, does it make sense to do John first or Abdullah first, John? I, I, I don't know. That I think Abdullah is a separate, uh, right, well, I wouldn't we'll necessarily do... call it a menu bar, but I, I think it's a good strategy to discuss. Okay. All right. Well, we'll talk about Abdullah and then we'll and then obviously we'll go on to, to the next one from John. He writes, based on your recommendations, some years ago, I installed menu meters and used it until Snow Leopard when apparently due to its being 32 bit, it was no longer supported. That was true in the beginning. And obviously they fixed that. It's, it is now supported in Snow Leopard. Uh, I then switched to iStat menus, as apparently you guys have as well, which is true. Recently, just after the latest software update for Mac OS 10 6.7. The network activity display for menu meters reappeared in the finder menu bar. I tried removing it with uninstall, but without success, I hunted down various remnants of menu meters, both manually in the prefs and pref panes folders, and even brought in Mac Keeper to help ferret out any remaining elements. But it remains. I checked Raging Software's website, but found nothing useful. I did note uh, in their readme uh, materials an acknowledgement to one James Bond for reacquiring access to the menu bar after having been locked out by Apple. My guess is that this was a hack and therefore may be difficult to find. Uh, do I need to read the rest of the question or is that enough for you to go on, John? I think it's enough to go on. Okay, go. And we haven't heard back, but it, I think this is not really a menu bar problem, but it's a... How do I get rid of software that I've installed and it, it just won't go away? Yeah. So the one way to get rid of it, which I think he tried. So, so there were two strategies. So one is, which I think he did. Yeah. I mean, you, you can, of course, get rid of the uh, pref pane. So anything that's a pref pane, at least these days, if you right click on it, you'll get an option saying remove blah, blah, preference pane. That's right. certainly one way to get rid of it. But I don't think that necessarily gets rid of everything associated with the pref pane. Right except the part that you see in system preferences. And he said he tried a few different things, but here's what I'm going to suggest, Dave. If you absolutely want to get rid of something, you have to know the name of the process. Okay. I'm going to figure out the name of the process. And here's what I did. And I, I, I'd be curious. I don't think we've heard back from, okay. From him. Um, so what I did is, well, how are you going to find out what, things are installed when you install a program. Gosh, you know, because it's a package file. I mean, how how are you going to look in there? Right. Well, sometimes you can say open package, but if it's an installer, you can't always do that. But what you can do, Dave, is, uh, and we've mentioned this, and I I mentioned it to him, there's our pal Pacifist. Right. And Pacifist will let you open up and see all of the, uh, all of the pieces that, that are inside an installer. So what I found and what I suspect is the case here and what I suggested that he do. So I was looking through it and actually it is kind of a convoluted installer. So I downloaded the latest version of it. Um, I didn't have an older one. Uh, So I'm doing the best I can here with what I had to work with. But looking through the pieces that it installs, what I did find find is that at some point it installs a, and I think it's actually a Unix executable called Menu Meter Net. Capital Menu, Capital Meter, Capital Net. All one word. And that's the name of the process. So I suspect somewhere that's getting launched somehow. So so what I think he has to do is search for that. Now, because I'm going to think it's a system file, 
what he's going to have to do, and I, I think I mentioned this, but he, he's going to have to search for a system file. But I think if he searches for menu meter net. Okay. Because I'm convinced that's the process that's responsible for displaying the network activity, which is what he said he was seeing. Interesting. Um, find that and whack it. Now, actually, once you whack that, then you may find whoever is responsible for launching it starting to complain in the console saying, oh, I can't find this. Better launch it again. Can't find this. Better try to launch it again. Right. Right. To, to me, that's that's the only way short of dragging it out, which I, I don't think this, you know, because this, the, I, I think menu meters did some kind of tricky stuff here. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't one that you could simply drag out of the menu bar. Right. Uh, so mentioning this, I think is just a general good strategy to take for anything that you can't seem to get rid of is get pacifist. Look what's in the installer, search for those pieces. Um, you could certainly use the other utilities. They, they typically do a very good job, but I think again, this, uh, this did things in an unusual way, which I don't think these utilities uh, could necessarily undo. Well, so. see, I, I had a different thought about this. Uh, and, and certainly what, what you described would work, but but I think there might be a simpler path. So uh, let's let's bear let, let's let's talk about the history of menu meters a little bit or recap that. So it was a 32 bit system preference pane. Um, but it, there was something, I don't know if it was 32 versus 64, I guess it was, but it wasn't a 32 bit pain, but I think it had some 32 bit code that wouldn't work with snow leopard initially. And then, uh, and then he updated it and rewrote it in a different way and made it work with snow leopard. But our friend Abdullah here never took that jump. He stopped using it when it was its old former self and, uh, and never updated. So when he ran, he said he ran the uninstaller, but my guess is that the uninstaller is built to uninstall the current version of menu meters. But, but what I do remember from all this is that menu meters had an upgrade path. And I believe menu meters installer was smart enough to go and collect all the old bits and pieces and replace them with the new ones in the new spots. So I think for him, and and I've done this a lot when I have some pesky piece of software that I thought was uninstalled, but isn't, if you reinstall it in full and then run the uninstaller, oftentimes that clears it out. And I think in this case, that might be the, uh, the quickest solution. Um, you know, you won't know until, until you try, of course, but, but that, you know, that reinstall and then uninstall is a, uh, a time honored thing that, that I certainly used to use a lot when I was doing sure. consulting. Yeah, sure. Uh, the other, of course, the, the, the old fallback here is right now. So with iStat menus, uh, you, you can, though it may be time consuming and it may be tedious when you boot the system, pretty much a lot of things that are loaded on startup are visible in the console. Now, right. The, the problem is, how do you find, because for example, when you launch OS 10 and you know, if you've got some time to kill, look in the console. And if you're running iStat menus, you will see the pieces of iStat menus loading as, as your system is launching. So that may be another strategy is, is to just look and see if you see anything with the word menu meters in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then that may head, you, uh, head you down the right path. So cool. Uh, all right. So this next one, John from John has a question about the menu bar and then has a question about screenshots. Are we, are we answering both of these? Yeah, I think you prepped this one. All right. Well, Let's I will, I will, Go. I will read his first question. He says, uh, after listening to your reviews, I did away with many different info menu bar items and settled for iStat Menus 3, which I am loving. I'm running an older uh, 3 gigahertz dual core uh, two, two processor Intel Z on Mac Pro with plenty of oomph and RAM to boot up and run almost applications easily. However, since installing iStat Pro 3, I do notice it takes a little longer for the menu bar to load after startup. And indeed, while it loads up, there appears to be some sort of aggressive hopping back and forth while iStat jostles for position in the menu bar with my two favorite menu bar apps, SoundSource and caffeine uh the worst thing about a slow loading menu bar is that some applications on startup go straight to the internet to look to download updates for example and more often than not such apps beat the apple airport extension loading up and so cannot connect to the internet resulting in premature and annoying messages 
I have resolved the problem in the best way that I know how, again, with prompting by Mac Geekab, by installing a 480 gigabyte OWC SSD. And what a joy to have a faster startup. 15 seconds from pressing the button to ready to work, but it does not really solve the uh, issue at hand. And in the least, not for my other household Mac computers. So the question is, is there any way that one can actually monitor and reorganize the sequence by which menu bar apps start up? John? Oh, boy. Okay. This is this is going to be an onion. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, no, actually, the, the answer is simple. Yes, just get an SSD. No, uh, that's great that, that he got that. But here's my answer, Dave, and I, I would certainly appreciate your input because yeah. I I was trying to research this and to find ways to do this. And the first thing I'm going to say is that in general, I don't think for the most part, there is a good way to change the order of menu bar items and which order they load with a caveat. Okay. Okay. Now, the thing is, startup items are in a number of locations, Right. Now, the, the only location in the thing is, is that you have, I'm sorry, there's launch daemons, there's launch agents, there's startup items. I think those are the three most notable directories yep. within multiple library folders. And then there's different library folders. So it's like three different levels of library folders in Mac OS X. And each of them has, could have startup items, launch daemons, and launch agents. Okay. Right, right. As far as I know, those you can't really change the ordering, and I think the assumption is that anything that's in there should be smart enough, uh, and I think uh, underneath it all, the, the OS tries to order them so that they load in an order that does not cause these problems. Now, the only place you can change the load order, Dave, is in your login items. You can? Yes. Did you know this? I thought I'd tried it once, and it didn't work. Dig it. Well, here, here dig this, okay? Okay. So, if you click on accounts and then click on login items... Yeah. Now, first, you're going to see a little lock. Okay? Yeah, I just undid yeah. the lock. Okay. Good. So you undid the lock. Yeah. Now, uh, now, if you go to login items, well, uh, tell me what happens here. So, so why don't you grab something uh -huh. from the list and try to move it? I get I, It starts selecting multiple things when I drag on it. Really? Yeah. Hold on. Uh, hold on. I'm sorry. Or do you have to? No, I can, I can click and hold and drag. And, yes. Uh, okay. That was my it, experience as well. Oh, so, but, but you it'll can drag only, to the end. Right. So here's the limitation. So you can. So first you got to click on that lock. But then if you grab an item, you can drag it, but you can only drag it to the bottom. So it, it, it's kind of lame in that you can't necessarily reorder them with a fine level of granularity. Oh, you can. You just need to decide what that order is and then build it once. Right. 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 So the thing is, and actually, I was clicking on an item. I'm sorry. I was clicking on an item that uh, is unknown, which means it's gone now. Oh. But if you if you grab something, you drag it. You can drag it to the bottom. So yeah, right. as you said, it's kind of a convoluted way of doing this. Now, you may be asking yourself, Dave, where are these items stored? Uh, you know that is a good question. Where are they stored, John? <laughs> Well, if you look in library preferences, either root level oh, library preferences right. or right. home directory library preferences, there will be a file called com.apple.loginitems.plist. That's right. That is where these are. So if you're adventurous, you could go into that file mm. and reorder things with a text editor like BB Editor or, you know, or, or one wrangler. of the developer tools yeah. or a text wrangler or whatever, whatever you want to use. So that gives you some level of control. Now, okay. I'm going to back off here and kind of shake my fist a bit or, or do a finger wag. Is that so what, one problem that he was describing, which should not be a problem, is that a well-written, being a software type of guy, I think I can say this, but a well-written application should not assume that the network is available. No. And, and, and also just to correct uh, what I believe to be an incorrect assertion by, by John or an inference is that the loading of the airport icon in the menu bar does not necessarily coincide with the airport network coming online. Uh, oh, that John. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. The John who wrote the question. Yes, yes. Sorry. 
Okay. I listen, you were dissing listen, me, John. No, I'm okay, I, I we're dissing no him. Than no, dissing we're not dissing him either. No. <laughs> no. Well, actually, I checked this, and if you look, Dave, yeah. and actually, I, I wrote this in my response to him. So, yeah, that's okay. why I'm saying this question is an onion, is if you look in the console at the things that the machine does when it starts up, one of the very first things it does is try to establish a network connection. Right. Now, it may not be successful, but that's one of the, which kind of makes sense. I mean, one of the first things with any modern computer is you probably want it to connect to a network because it's like the expectation is it's going to want to do all this sort of stuff here. So, so I guess my finger wag or fist shake at the people that write the applications is that you shouldn't, an application should not assume that the network is available and online before it tries to go out and do something. And I see this with, uh, for example, you know, I, I wake and sleep my MacBook quite frequently. Okay. And the two things that I always have running are mail and my Twitter client. And neither one of those will make an assumption that the network is there. If it's not there, they don't check. Once it goes online, then I see a little progress wheel spinning and they start doing their thing. So what I said to him is you may want to write these people making these apps and say, you know, you may want to write your app a little bit better. Because again, I can say this is a software guy. You shouldn't assume the network is available and functioning. And, and it's easy enough writing a program to say, oh, hi, what's the network connection? Okay. Right. By the way, are you, uh, are you functioning? Are you talking to anyone? Right. And what I think these apps are doing is, is not making a thorough check wh- huh. whether they can communicate. Now, so login items is a very crude way of ordering what happens. Now, just because you start them up in a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to start up and complete in that order. Right. So that's why I'm saying it's very crude. But then I found something, Dave, which I think may solve the problem, assuming that it's something that's in login items. And okay. I didn't know this existed. So a little bit of the Google foo, but I found something called delayed launcher. Ah. And basically what it is, is a utility that will give you finer grain control over what happens to the item in your login items. And you can actually order things with a time delay. Hey, that would be really handy because, for example, Dropbox, when it loads on my machine, I have a lot of files Mm -hmm. in my Dropbox folder. It, it, you know, it takes a not insignificant piece of time to go through those and of course, it's going through on the hard drive, so it's slowing everything else down too. That would be very right. interesting. So I haven't tried it yet, but I looked at the description. But it, but it's called delayed launcher, and as far as I can tell, what it does is it basically lets you order not only in the load order, but in uh, you can also set a time delay of the items. Now the only caveat is the items in your login items list, which right, of course, Dropbox is one of them. Right, as are many things. So I think that may solve his problem now. That's pretty cool. Now, the final thing, which, again, peeling the onion here, which I don't know if I necessarily go here, Dave, but you can also look at all the the things we mentioned before that load on startup by using a program that that we've used, uh, though you got to be careful because you can screw things up, (laughs) called Lingon. Yep. And Lingon will show you all these little guys that are in your, uh, you know, your system daemons and your user daemons and, and things like that. But I said to him, honestly, uh, that that's getting to a, a level of geekiness that I don't think you need to get to. And that you could certainly try to disable something. My guess, that's being, is, my guess is yeah. most, if not all of his problems are related to the stuff in the login items folders. Good. Yeah, I, I bet you. In right. that case, I wouldn't. And, and yeah, I mean, Lingon, you could certainly use it to muck about. I mean, if you muck about too deeply, it's going to tell you, you you really shouldn't touch this. Right. Um, right. And you probably shouldn't. But but if it's something that is started up through one of these startup scripts and, and it consistently causes problems. He could disable that and try to write his own script to start it up. But again, that's getting into heavy geekery that I, even I would be afraid of. Yeah. yeah. And, and you should be too. I think. That's right. I certainly am. <laughs> All right, cool. Let's move on to where, how are we doing on time here? Oh yeah. We're okay. Uh, let's move on to Lyndon. Uh, this is, I think this will be quick, but, uh, eh, well, yeah, we can do it. Um, Lyndon writes, I have a Mac Pro, which has been behaving rather oddly of late. In short, it has been freezing up. There's been no consistent pattern in terms of software running processor usage or temperature. You know, I'm going to stop right there and say before hearing anything else, if those are your symptoms, I don't care what these specifics are. But if those are your symptoms, think hardware. If it's consistent, it's often software. If it's inconsistent, it's almost always hardware. 
Uh, whoa, and, whoa, whoa! Really? Hmm, yeah, that, that, that. that's my gut. Fe- that's 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 kind of where right, I go, go on with your this. Gut. I, I, you, you know, I, tr- I trust you, brother. Yeah, it because you know the thing is, software will always behave the way it is programmed to behave unless that programming is changed, right? So, given the same set of circumstances, software will always behave the same way. Hardware, however, if it's having heat issues or, you know, uh, any other problems, you know, if you wind up using one area of RAM instead of another and one area is bad and the other's not, you know, that's where that inconsistency comes from. Uh, and that, that was kind of that warning bell that goes off in my head right, from right. Uh, that, that's right, a holdover I'll, from all those days. Oh. Okay, I'll, but, I'll, I'll go with you on that. You know, and I'm going to leave it there. We don't even need to talk about what it was. He's got some graphics card problem, but I think it's hardware. Um, you, you know, and the way well, to so the way to test for it is to boot your system DVD with the D key held down, and that should start Apple's hardware diagnostics. This is not the Snow Leopard, you know, store bought DVD. This is the one that came with your Mac, uh, and and then it'll, it'll let you run through those tests and. And uh, in his case, the problem he describes is is video related. So I think it's either going to be graphics or or RAM. And if it's not under Apple Care, then you're going to wind up paying for the solution um, because it's most likely hardware. So. Yeah, I, I guess I'm with you. I mean, the only thing that concerns me is freezing up. I mean, that that is certainly not normal. Mm-mm. No, it's and yeah, not. I, I would agree with you that that if your machine is just grinding to a halt and you totally lose control and you got to force shutdown by holding down the power button typically, yep. then yeah, a, a RAM or other piece of hardware. Now, if he has the luxury of having another video card, well, yeah, right. Give that a roll. You may be able to get an inexpensive video card and swap it out, or maybe go to the, uh, the Apple store and say, Hey guys, can you, you know, yeah. help me out here? And maybe do you have, and I'm sure they have a spare video card that they could pop in there and, and that would quickly uh, be able to diagnose the problem. Right. Right. Or RAM, which, yeah, you know, sometimes, I mean, that's the funny thing is sometimes you'll run the diagnostics to test the RAM and it will not say there's a problem, even though there may be. Yeah. Oh, that's right. The diagnostics are not thorough enough uh, to identify all problems, but they will identify some. So, uh, uh, All right. A couple of uh, questions about booting. Rick writes, uh, as a convert to Max a few years ago. I've always been curious and a bit amazed at how cloned copies of hard drives can be booted uh, from any Mac, regardless of hardware differences between the two. I use Carbon Copy Cloner to make copies of my hard drive to an external disk. As I understand it, I can boot this copy from any other Mac computer and have an exact running copy of what I had on my hard drive at the time the clone was made. Uh, I remember from my Windows days that the operating system seemed to be much more dependent on the hardware and associated drivers to run properly. So I'm now curious as to how this works. How does OS 10 account for the potentially uh, different hardware configurations? Obviously the external drive doesn't include any of the hardware that existed on the original clone drive and the Mac I boot into could have vastly different hardware on it. So yeah, this is where the benefit of Apple building the whole widget helps Uh, on the windows side. There is a almost unlimited number of options that you might uh, put together, right? You, you might get one third party video card or another with Apple. When they're building the whole thing, they know exactly what you've got in there. And, and especially from a motherboard and chipset uh, standpoint, which is kind of the most important thing when you're compiling the, the kernel. So yes, they, uh, they did not used to do this, but I think starting with, I mean, it's been a while. It might've even been 10.4, John, uh, any, install of Mac OS 10 contains everything required to boot all known Macs as of the time that that OS version was released. And, and I, I state all known Macs and there's even a star by that. But if you are running, uh, if let's say you clone a drive with a 10, and then you take that drive and you try to boot uh, one of the new MacBook pros that, you know, that came out recently, it's not going to boot. Uh, because those machines need, you know, I think it's probably 1066 or maybe 1067 to boot them. And, and, and Apple builds those things into the uh, updates that we get. So, so it's important to, if you've got everything up to date, then yes, it will boot every Mac except Snow Leopard is Intel only and will not boot older PowerPC Macs. So you got to bear that in mind. 
Short of that, yes, it does work, and it's uh, it's kind of magical, and it's a it's a really helpful thing because, like you said, you can make a clone of your hard drive and be relatively certain that you can just take that clone and put it on another Mac, and you're good to go, and uh, and that's a beautiful thing. So, anything to add there, John? Absolutely. All right, go. Okay, hold on to your seat here. <laughs> All right, should I get my hat too, or is the seat enough? Uh, you could get your hat too. Okay, but. To, to dig a little deeper into this, so one thing I've noticed when I've been doing various troubleshooting, especially migrating system from one version of the OS to the other and getting rid of cruft, is if you look in your system library extensions folder, which I think for the most part is where you're going to find all your hardware and, and or software drivers, yep. right? Sure. Most of them anyway. Sure. Yeah. Here's the interesting thing. So if you look at that, and I'm looking at it right now. Now, this system here has been migrated from a system that used to be a PowerPC system. Okay. But I think for the most part, uh, yeah, I agree with you, is that what you're going to see in that folder is a list of all possible drivers right. for the hardware that Apple blesses. Yep. And if it's there, it's going to load it. And how do you know which ones are loaded? Well, I probably would run system profile and go to the software section, go to the extensions section. Really? And I'm actually looking right now. And if you look at the two, you will see that not everything that is in your extensions folder is in the list of extensions because you may not have all the hardware. For example, Dave, I noticed that just a, a, a trivial example. I noticed that there is an Apple underscore eyesight.kext in the folder. Okay. Extensions folder. Yeah. Obviously, my mini does not have an eyesight. Ha-ha. So guess what? It doesn't show up in the list of extensions loaded because the computer doesn't need to load it. Right. So, so I think, uh, but, but your point is perfectly valid in that because the set of hardware that they use is is tightly controlled, yep. or at least more tightly controlled than than our friends, uh, sure. than our Windows uh, comrades. Can I say? Yeah, I can say that. Can say um, that. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, the the, the 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 that's the reason that for the most part, if you have a hard drive that that has all the extensions here, it will pick and choose the ones that it needs. And as long as you don't have any oddball hardware, then you you should be just fine. So here's here's an interesting thing. So I, I have that same Apple underscore eyesight text. It's not in my list either. Um, so it, it, that may have been the you know one exception to the rule here. Uh, and I'm not sure if that eyesight thing would load if I were to do something that launched it. Oh, um, maybe. maybe that wasn't a good example, but I, I noticed but that there's certainly more sense, items. You're absolutely right. Yeah. There are certainly more items in the extensions folder than I see loaded in the extensions. And I, that, I, I know I've diagnosed problems in the past where, where hardware I know I didn't have was not in the list of extensions because I didn't have the hardware. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's good stuff. That's good. I can't search this either, but uh, yeah, see, I think the eyesight is a USB thing. So yeah, I have my, I have my camera up. I can see my smiling mug here, but, uh, but it still doesn't show up in the list, even though I reloaded it. So Oh, wait, no, I think it's, uh, well, no, I think the, the naming is a little different here. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, they, you, you are, you are absolutely right that that's, that's where all those drivers are. And maybe the extensions thing doesn't show them all. Um, but it, it certainly will show, uh, the core ones that are required to boot the OS. Moving on to Greg, who has a, a very similar question. Sure. Okay. Uh, Greg says, I helped someone erase uh, an iMac the other day using an external drive. They're going to sell it to a friend and bought a new one the other day. He lost the original install disks. I just used disk utility and used the erase tab and it was the standard erase and I formatted it for Intel machines, GUID and HFS plus journaled. I told him to just go to Apple and buy a retail disc of Snow Leopard, pop it in and install it. But this doesn't work. It gets stuck on the gray screen with the Apple logo. Why is this? Is it that the computer's newer i7 MacBook Pro, uh, you need to have the original disc, which he lost? I called Apple Care and they said to just order some new replacement disc, but he could not confirm or deny or give me a good reason as to why the retail discs wouldn't work. He said they should. I'm looking into putting the Snow Leopard install on an external drive so this won't happen. I did boot successfully with my Snow Leopard 10.6.6 on the MacBook Pro to erase, but it just doesn't install off of the retail disk. Okay, Uh, yeah, so this is exactly what we were talking about uh, in the answer to Rick's question, which is why we put these two together. 
the snow leopard disc that's on the shelf is not new enough to boot that particular machine. So perfect example uh, of, of why you need the discs that came with it, or you could, um, I think that's got a firewire port. You can boot it with the T key down and put it in a uh, firewire target disc mode and then use another Mac to install. Oh no, you can't use another Mac to, Oh yeah, you could use another Mac to install Mac OS 10 onto that in firewire mode and then use that same Mac to update it to 10, six, well, 10, six, seven now. And then at that point, the MacBook pro should boot from that, uh, from its internal drive. Right. Wouldn't that work, John? I think so. I don't know. We can't, I can't try it here. Well, I know we had this issue in the past that, yeah, it's yeah. because of the, the i5 and i7 that the, there's right. a slightly different kernel, I think, that, yeah, you would you would need the uh, the discs. Yeah. That yeah. it came with, so. All right. We, so. Uh, <laughs> we've been at this for 55 minutes so far, so I think it's time. We have a couple of things to talk about here on Cool Stuff Found. I don't know how many of them we'll get through. But uh, but as promised, we are including a couple of these, peppering them in to uh, to each show. And the first one is the one that I mentioned at the beginning of the show that goes all the way back to show 316, which I guess isn't all that far back. And Dave writes, listener Dave writes, uh, one of the questions on episode 316 was in reference to being able to plug or unplug an external device such as a monitor, yet keep the Windows settings from the original setup, including keeping the windows from all apps in their original spots. I am a teacher and am constantly plugging and unplugging an external monitor and LCD protector into my MacBook Pro. I use a phenomenal app called Stay, which keeps all the settings intact, similar to the app you mentioned titled Marco Polo. And it is at cordlessdog.com slash stay, which is kind of funny. Uh, but, uh, it's 15 bucks. You can download a demo. I downloaded the demo this morning when I was prepping the show and I'm, it was like instant love because it does exactly what, uh, the, uh, the listener in three sixteen was looking for. And it does exactly what I wanted too. uh, you you get your windows, you know, you set up with whatever monitor you're going to, you know, set up with and then you save a profile and it goes through every app and saves it all out. And then you can unplug that monitor and go to, you know, either another monitor or just the internal one in my case in the MacBook Pro. So I had just one monitor and I reset all that and I said save and it saves different profiles based on not just the fact that you have an external screen connected or not, but what external screen you have connected. Uh, it knows, you know, by, by looking at some parameters, the size and the, in the identifier, it can actually have multiple, multiple, um, profiles for different external screens. So in his case, he's got a projector is one of them and an external monitor is another, or just his MacBook pro. And when you switch, it when you switch from you know one to the other just by plugging in, it automatically goes through and repopulates all your windows for you. Uh, and you can even go in and edit. So if it happened to grab an app that you didn't want it to mess with, you can go in and either pull specific windows or specific apps out of the profile. It's awesome. You can probably tell I love it. Do you plug into an external monitor ever, John? No. So you won't care. Never. About this. Although Never. you know, I could see even if you don't plug into extra monitors, I could see where this would be handy if you get. You know, your mail program where you want it and Safari where you want it and your Twitter app and your calendar and iTunes and all of that. You could use stay to just save that location. And then that way, you know, if things get all foobar because your screen resolution changes or whatever, you just run that app and boom, everything's back in business. So you could do it. Sweet. Yeah. You know, something. Uh, all right. Scott writes. Cool stuff found has always been one of my favorite parts of the Mac Gab Fest. Uh, I mean, Mac Geek Gab. Many tips and apps mentioned there have always become part of my Mac and iOS repertoire. I'd like to put in the good word for an application that I think is truly cool and really useful that I've been using for years called Quick Keys. The application does so much that it's almost hard to describe. It easily takes the place of multiple apps you would otherwise need to... Expand text or insert graphics through abbreviations or drop down menu selections, a la Text Expander. Launch applications with a hotkey, replacing Quicksilver, Launchpad, or numerous others. Start scheduled events easily with incredible flexibility, replacing Kronos, iCal events, and at uh, Crons and all that. Run complex sequences with either a menu selection or a hotkey. 
Uh, for anyone that doesn't want to tackle Apple script, this is a real blessing. Although the sequences actually allow you to launch scripts as part of a sequence. Uh, you can select menu items, even deeply nested menu levels with a single keystroke. Uh, and he says there's much, much more. It is, uh, it, it has been around for a long time. It goes back to the OS, well, uh, seven at least, maybe Mac OS six, uh, when it wasn't even Mac OS. Uh, it was system six, but, uh, yeah, cool stuff. So, uh, it's, it's about 60 bucks, but, uh, as he said, it replaces potentially a bunch of different apps and makes your life easier. So thanks, Scott. That's good stuff. Use quick keys. Did you ever use quick keys? I used to use it back in the like system seven days. No, I'm quick okay. enough. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll do, oh, we'll, we'll do one or two more. I remember them. Yeah, they've been they've been around for ages. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Mark writes. I wanted to share a really cool remote access tool with you. It is called Slink from Slinkware.com, uh, and it is available from the Mac App Store for about twenty five bucks. Essentially, it allows you to access a remote Mac that you install a f- small free utility on. Uh, I'm not going to read his his message here. Uh, I'll, I'll just describe it because I I played around with it a little bit, although I haven't been outside of my network here, so I can't truly test it, but back to my Mac will let you do this, but back to my Mac lets you only control one Mac at a, at, at a time. Of course you could set it up on multiple Macs, but it doesn't really put you on your network. It just lets you control that one computer, either with file or screen sharing. This thing, you run an app on your computer. You know how I'm always talking about how I have a VPN set up here, John, and uh, and and I can get in my network and see things that are in my 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 network as though I'm here. That's what this app does. But you you don't have to program your router to let you in. You just install this on another Mac that's going to be running all the time or at least available to be running all the time. And it'll let you do iTunes sharing, photo sharing. Uh, you know, if you're if you're using like uh, Busy Sync or whatever, it'll let you do that. It can it'll allow you to browse Bonjour devices, so it makes it the same sort of thing. It's like setting up a VPN, and it'll even let you do uh, secure browsing. So if you want to browse through your home network to make sure you're you're secure, you can create this secure tunnel, and then it'll browse as though you were at home. So uh, so for twenty five bucks, that's actually pretty handy because it's a sort of a one stop shop and and uh, takes care of configuring your router and it uh, and all that good stuff. So it's cool. It's cool. You should set it up, John. I, I could actually imagine you using it. No, I see the, uh, the list here. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just did back to my Mac when I was at Macworld just for kicks. And, sure. Uh, yeah. It's certainly what it does. It does very nicely. It, 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 but, right. But here looking at all the features that these guys have. Yeah. 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 It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So uh, I, I, lo- I, I, you know, I know you guys love cool stuff found too, but uh, I, I love it probably just as much as, as any of the rest of us do, because I'm just always finding out about these great things. It's awesome. Uh, you know, one thing I found out about John is I, I was hunting through my email. Uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago for something from the, the company nuance, the people that bought Mac speech, and I found this press release from them from a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months ago now for a product called uh, nuance PDF converter for Mac. And I thought, Hey, I got to check this thing out because uh, maybe it's a, a you know, a, a worthy competitor to PDF pen pro. And you know, that would be a good thing. I mean, of course I love the people that smile, uh, but competition's good, right? So more apps, you know, the merrier, and then actually what I found out was that they actually licensed PDF pen pro, mm-hmm. but, but they did something cool with this. They, they replaced the, um, the OCR software part of, uh, PDF pen pro with OmniPage. So you get, you get that. So that's, I, I think at least on paper supposed to be better than, uh, than, you know, some of the others. It's, it's kind of the, the, the one that everyone strives mm-hmm. to beat. And then they've got this other thing There's it, it, and it looks just like PDF pen pro when you run it with the addition of one little button that says convert and you can take your PDF and hit the convert button. And it actually brings you to a web page where it sends the PDF off to nuance. So you got to know that, you know, you don't want to do this with uh, necessarily sensitive files, but 
you can convert your PDF into like, you know, Word document, Excel, I, you know, pages, numbers, whatever it, it's awesome. So you can, you, you know, you, you can take this PDF and convert it back into a Word document. And I did it with a couple of PDFs that, that had some funky formatting and it came through perfectly. So, and it's the same price as, uh, as PDF pen pro. So, and they've got a little demo and you can, you can go try it out uh, at nuance. We'll put a link, but, uh, pretty cool. I, I thought that was, uh, thought that was an interesting little thing that they partnered up. Everybody seems to be partnering up with smile. They make some of the coolest kind of core technology that's out there. So that's that one more. Or should we, uh, should we wrap it up, John? Uh, why not? One more. All right, here we go. Jared, take us, take us out. Hey, John and Dave, it's Jared in Monterey. I'm uh, just listening to, to episode number 324 premium. And uh, at the point where you guys are discussing um, iTunes movement, uh, media folder between, uh, between two different machines. Hey, there's a, there's a really great piece of software out there by, uh, I, I believe a fellow you guys know, Brian Webster, who runs the, uh, the site Fat Cat Software. He has an application out called PowerTunes, and PowerTunes is a, uh, a great GUI interface for manipulating and moving and copying your library folder, as well as your media folder, as well as splitting up libraries and copying content between different iTunes libraries. It's a really, really fantastic tool. I've been using it for for almost as long as I've been a Mac user now, and uh, it's pretty awesome. So, just wanted to throw that little hint uh, your way as a, as a bit of feedback for the show. Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. Uh, enjoy listening to you every day. Take care. Bye. Thanks, Jared. Yep, it's 20 bucks uh, from Fat Cat Software, so thanks for uh, for sending that in. That's good stuff. Cool stuff, in, in fact. And that's why we... Uh, that's why we do what we do there. But now it's time to do this part of the show, which is the end of the show. Because it's time to move on, move past this, put this one out so that all of you can enjoy it. And hopefully you did. But before we go, almost as a matter of course, John, we want to make sure everybody knows how to get in touch with us. So, John, if you had to pick a favorite way of having uh, all of our great listeners here contact us, what would that be? Premium at MacGeekGab.com. Did you say premium at MacGeekGab.com? And that's email, that's of right. course. But email is not the only way you could get in touch with us, Dave. You could probably pick up the phone. And if you had to pick up the phone, what would you dial, Dave? Well, I'd dial 206-666-GEEK. And I'd magically know that GEEK was... 4335. That's right. You can uh, you can see all the show notes at macgeekgab.com and you can Skype us to macgeekgab. Get the theme here. We've got this whole macgeekgab thing going on. It, it works for us. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, it's taking hold. Yeah, that's right. I want to thank Michael Johnston. Uh, although he was not able to convert show 326, uh, he uh, he's actually out witnessing the launch of the shuttle Endeavor, the space shuttle Endeavor down in Florida. So, uh, but he will, I believe, have converted this one for you. Uh, he's the host of the We Have Communicators podcast, which is, uh, I guess they took a little bit of a hiatus the last couple of weeks, but they are coming back as soon as Michael get back, gets back from his, uh, his Florida trip. And, of course, Cashfly provides all the bandwidth, and we all appreciate that. Anything to add, John, before we say, uh, say goodbye for now? We're going to say goodbye. We're going to say goodbye. Say adios. Say uh, sayonara, right? Is that kind of. uh... You can say sayonara. (laughs) I think they know what you mean. Arrivederci. Is that it? Yeah, my French is. I've heard people say it before. The other thing I like to say, 